The following Dharma discourse was given by Jeffrey Shugan Arnold at Zen Mountain Monastery. Shugan Roshi is the head of the Mountains and Rivers Order and abbot of the monastery. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmn.org. Thank you for listening. This is from the Transmission of Light Koan Collection. Michika. Dirtaka said to Michika, to practice sorcery, thus learning something minor, is like being dragged by a rope. You should know for yourself that if you give up the little stream and immediately return to the great ocean, you will realize the uncreated. On hearing this, Michika realized enlightenment. In the poem, Though there be the purity of the autumn waters extending to the horizon, how does that compare with the haziness of a spring night's moon? Most people want clear purity, but though you sweep and sweep, the mind is not yet emptied. This collection was compiled by Kazan, who was um, a few generations after Master Dogen. And um, it sort of chronicles the enlightenment experiences, starting with the Buddha and going down to Dogen's successor, Ajom. And particularly in the early years, um, particularly in the, with the Indian ancestors, these are drawn from another text called The Transmission of the Lamp, which is, was written hundreds of years ago and has the um, alleged biographies of, of these uh, various Zen masters in different lineages. And much of the information is unverifiable. Can't verify that it's true or that it's not true. A lot of it has a very kind of uh, magical quality. and uh, But that's what we have. And so, you know, as practitioners, the historical veracity of these stories is not the most important thing. It's not, this is not a history lesson. They're used for teaching and to communicate different aspects of the Dharma and what the path is. And uh, <clears throat> said so that Michika was, a, was from India and he was the teacher of a very large Sangha of sorcerers. That was their practice. They were sorcerers. And that he met Durtaka and um, said that, that in past lives, they had been students together at the same time, and that Michika had gone towards sorcery, and that Dirtaka had gone towards the Dharma. And here they were meeting again, and Michika wanted to enter the Dharma, and so asked his teacher to liberate him. And so they had an encounter, and that's what this koan is pointing to. And so we're concluding an introductory retreat, and I was thinking about the path, which is such an in, incredibly important aspect of, of Buddhism, that it is a path. The Buddha didn't talk about religion, he didn't use that word, that's a, a Western term. He wasn't establishing Buddhism, he was teaching a path, a way. And very, very specifically, very... Um, 
very clearly articulated as a path recognizing that there are certain inescapable truths that we just can't wiggle out of, right? Being born in this human form, we get old, right? You just can't stop that. We get sick. Do your best, stay healthy, but we get sick and we die, right? So there's no bargaining, no deal-making, no cleverness that's going to help us to avoid those things. And even when everything's going swimmingly, oftentimes it's not. Even in the best of times, there's something that's not there, that's not complete or sufficient or satisfying. And so what is this path? We're all living a life. We all have desires arise within us. And beginning early on, we start to figure out and establish what's important here and what's not. Which is another way of saying, what I give my attention to and what do I ignore? What is worthy and unworthy of my attention of being in the world at all? And in that field of deliberation is everything. You, each of us, each other, anything we encounter. When we look at the skandhas that form, right, something appears appropriate to that particular sense organ, a sound to the ear, and an object to the eye, a flavor to the, to the tongue, taste. And the next aspect, sensation, padana, feeling. That means we make contact and we experience it as something good or something not good. We want more, we want less. Pain or pleasure. There's neutral, but we're not so interested in that. And so right at the very, that first moment of contact is wanting or not wanting. And in, in the samsara life and dukkha, that's the driving force. And so what do we want? What is important? What do we, don't we want? What is not important? And that becomes the base upon which we pursue things, take certain paths, make decisions, what do we want to achieve, how do we make those choices, and we're all the while living within this physical body, within time and space, and permanence, within an economy, within social structures, within laws and social norms. We have different levels of access to wealth, relationships, work, health, good luck. And when we look around, everybody seems to be doing pretty much the same thing. Figuring it out. Doing what, more or less, what everybody else is doing. And of course, we hope for success. We want to avoid failures. We want what is good. We don't want what is not good. But we see that we're just not in control of of all of that. And so what is the basis of our decisions? How do we choose in this life? Which is another way of saying, what is the karma that we're creating? What is the basis for our intentions? What are we relying upon? And is what we're relying upon trustworthy? In needing to trust ourselves, as each of us has to be here today, What is this self that we're relying on? 
When is that self-trustworthy and when is it not? How do we know the difference? What beliefs, values, experiences, our hopes and dreams, fears and expectations, all of that inner, those inner machinations, what is reliable and what's not? How do we live this life? Because there's no opting out of that. You're alive, you are living your life, you are making choices. We are all making choices. Those choices are having consequence. That's why the Buddha said to live a human life is to be fundamentally a moral being. Because the choices we make most often do have consequence. They're helping, they're not helping. And so we talk about being on a spiritual path. What does that mean? When I first came into practice, I was very... That like wasn't really in my chosen lexicon. What does it actually mean? Well, the dictionary says it's relating to or affecting the human spirit or soul as opposed to material or physical things. So somehow it's, it's over here, spiritual is over here, and physical and material things are over here. Well, Buddhism sees that as part of the problem. <laughs> part of the whole mindset that is creating the very thing that we're trying to understand and resolve. It is, the, it is that which is not concerned with material values or pursuits. Well, then what do you do with your life? What do you do with all of the material values and pursuits in your life? You know, do you keep your spiritual life in a closet and take it out when it's time and put it back in the closet? Or do you Pull that out and put your life in a closet. And that's why, although we use that language, I use that language, <laughs> it's not that. That's why the Buddha said it's a path. It's an enlightening path. It's a path of liberation. That's what it is. So what is the nature of this path? The Buddha described as a noble path, a path worthy of your faith, your respect, your time and energy, your dignity, right? Because if we ourselves want to be a dignified being, a, a being worthy of being in this life and worthy of respect, I think. And so in this koan, Dirtaka said to Michika, to practice sorcery, the, the focal point of the practice that he had devoted himself to, is learning something minor. It's like being dragged by a rope. You should know for yourself that if you give up the small stream, the small stream that you're in, and immediately return to the great ocean, you will realize the uncreated. So on Friday night, I talking about the Four Noble Truths. The first noble truth is that life is dukkha. All compounded existence is dukkha, the Buddha said. What that means, in Buddhism, compounded means all things that arise in a mutual sense of dependency, right? Rather than being autonomous, self-existing, existing apart and separate from anything else, unaffected. Think of something being separate and distinct as being unaffected by anything else. Have you ever seen anything in the world that is like that? The Buddha said there is nothing in the world that is like that. Everything 
arises mutually. So the Buddha said, everything that is compounded, that arises in a state of mutual dependence, is dukkha, can bring forth disappointment and dissatisfaction because it's not going to last. It's built in. (laughs) Because it was built, right? Anything that was created eventually is going to come apart, no matter what it is. And so the Buddha knew that, that in order to realize something that was liberating us in this life of impermanence, not apart from it, but in this life of impermanence, it had to be something that wasn't made of the same stuff. It had to be something that wasn't made at all. Because if it was constructed, if it was something that we constructed, an idea, an outlook, a belief system, an ideology, that ultimately is going to come apart. You can't rely on that. And so the Buddha had an understanding that what he needed to make contact with or or discover was something that was not created. To return to the great ocean and realize the uncreated, the unborn, something that isn't the result of anybody's effort. And so Michigan was practicing sorcery. So we might think of this, so like, what does this have to do with us? Maybe some of you are magicians, I don't know. (laughs) But in a way, aren't we all magicians? Mental images form, we have conversations, we save the day. How many times this weekend did you save the day in some part of your life? enter into a conversation and say just the right thing, and everybody was like, oh, yes. (laughs) Right? Or the opposite, ruin the day. So we create these worlds in our mind that are not just mental images, but we start to respond to them. It affects our emotions. We start breathing. Energy arises. Right? There's a building up of something. But we're just making something up in our mind. But when we don't understand that, we don't recognize that, then we turn that outwards. We sort of send that out into the world that is now made up in our mind. We're not seeing it as it is. It's our projections. It's our desires. It's what we want the world to be. It's what I want you to be. And when you are that thing, I'm going to love you so much. But you got to get there. Or when I... When I become that thing, then I'm going to, I'm going to be so happy and satisfied. But I got to get there. There's a bargain. And so, if we think of magic or sorcery as having special powers, conjuring, although there are stories of highly developed masters who could levitate, move through air, space, and time, pass through walls, solid objects. In general. In the Zen tradition, that's not really valued. Most often, that's really seen as a minor path, not really something we should be devoting our attention to. Because there's much, much more urgent matters at hand, like today. Master Dogen said, and if we think of this in terms of what do we take refuge in, what do we rely upon, Dogen said, the world-honored one, the Buddha, clearly taught all sentient beings not to take refuge that is, not to rely upon or cultivate, put your energy into mountain deities, demon spirits, and so on, or in shrines of those outside the way, 
and though he may be speaking about outside of Buddhism, we could think of any path that is not genuine, that is not true, that is not worthy of one's devotion. It is not possible to be liberated from various sufferings by taking refuge in these ways. People follow the crooked teachings of those outside the way and follow the ways of cows and deer and demons, those who practice not speaking. These are all practices. He's just listing various practices that have been taken up, some still probably taken up, by seekers, ascetics, following different paths, trying to figure out how to resolve the fundamental matter. Following the ways of cows and deer and demons, those who practice not speaking, those who practice not hearing, dogs, chickens, peacocks, there is a practice of living as a dog in ancient India, literally. All fours, eating scraps. Or those who put ash on their bodies, grow long hair, sacrifice sheep on the seasonal rites after chanting mantras, worship the fire in the fourth month, bow to the wind on the seventh day. They dedicate numerous flowers to devas and pray for attaining what they desire. There's no reason why these practices will cause liberation. Thus people suffer in vain without receiving wholesome results. This is not recommended. (laughs) This is not recommended by those who are wise. And so make sure that you don't mistakenly fall into such crooked paths. Do not take refuge in practices that are similar to these. Be alert, be aware, investigate, examine. Human birth is difficult to acquire and Buddha Dharma is rarely encountered. Don't spend your life in the company of demons and waste your lifetime among those who have crooked views, among those who are not going to help you. And so, this call we might turn this towards thinking about well, what do we take refuge in today as individuals? as communities, as a nation. And how do we know what we take refuge in? We'll just see where the money is, follow the money. What are the biggest buildings? What's on the front page? What's getting all the attention? I read some time ago that one of the signs of the sort of coming apart of an empire is when chefs are elevated to very high positions. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if that's true. I thought it was kind of interesting, odd. <laughs> Has that been seen to be true back through history? We are in a time where, you know, there are a lot of chefs' channels. and <clears throat> So what are we seeking? And is what we're seeking worthy of that. If we're clear about this, if we're not clear about this, how do we know if we have found a true path? Well, first, is the path true in and of itself? What does that mean? How would we know? And then secondly, is it true for us? Because a path could be true in the sense that it is is valid, it's in accord with reality, but it's not true for us. It's not our path. And so when a sorcerer is casting a spell, when a mind is creating magic, magical illusions, 
and we're casting those spells onto others, projecting them out, do we know that we're also casting it upon ourselves? See, that's the thing. Every word we say that we speak out to others, we're hearing that too. We're talking to ourselves. Every action that we commit to, right, it's our body. That action is coming back to us as well. We're influencing ourselves at the same time. There's a, one of the moral teachings, the precepts, is to proceed clearly. Don't cloud the mind. Don't cloud the mind. Don't intoxicate the mind. And it specifically points to intoxicants. But we think of it in a larger way as well, in terms of all those things that just cloud our thinking, distracts us, make us numb, false views, misinformation, disinformation. It's the clear and pure Buddha mind, the mind of enlightenment. Do not let it become cloudy. That's why in that, as it regards to intoxicants, so you have a drink, you get drunk, that comes and goes. It's not neutral, but it's temporary. But what we do in that state can have lasting effects, actually, for our whole life. We do something in those states that we wouldn't do if we were proceeding clearly. And although we sober up, the karma of that action lives on. We can think of a belief system, an ideology, a philosophy, as something that can function in this way, cast a spell. Isn't the story we tell about ourselves? We tell about others in a way, functioning as a kind of spell, that we come under the, the spell of. But we are storytellers, right? This day, this weekend, you can tell a story. You probably will, right? Go home and talk to your family and friends. This is what happened. This is what you experienced. That's what we do. And it's kind of a wonderful part of human nature. Who doesn't love a good story? But is it a true story? And sometimes it's not, and you know that, and that's what makes it fun. (laughs) But sometimes it's not, and we don't know that. And we proceed as though it is. And because we're storytellers, if we're going to tell a story, make it a true one. And if it's not a true one, is this a true story? I don't know. But can a a story that is not historically true have value? Of course. Of course it can. But what makes it helpful? That it's inspiring, but inspiring us towards something that is good that it invigorates us, invigorates us towards something that is positive, that it is clarifying, clarifying in a way that is clarifying into what is actually real. In Buddhism, that's the sort of the test, the litmus test. Because there's nothing that is absolutely true, absolutely real. Nothing exists on its own. None of this exists on its own. We created it. We create it, actually, every day. Those of you who are here for the weekend, we're part of that. We create it together. If we're going to do that, let's do that for the best of purposes. Which means we have to get pretty clear about what is important and what's not important. If you're going to dream, dream yourself awake. 
when we think about what's, what is going on in, in our time, not just in our country, but in our country, those spells, those ideologies, those belief systems, racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, class bias, all of the suffering that is not just the suffering of individuals upon other individuals, but of deliberate institutions, ideologies, systems, passed down generation to generation. Aren't those all spells? That we grow up in and so we become subject to them. How can we not? Just as delusion, believing in a separate self, in a sense, is a spell that we grow up in. And that gets fortified and reified and perpetuated and explained. And so how can we not be influenced? But practice helps us to realize we're being influenced. And we may still be influenced, but now we know that we are under the influence of something. And that's the beginning of something. The Dharma itself is not a story. It has no story. It's not a narrative. It's not of time and place. It has no purpose, right? The Dharma is not like a consciousness that wants the very best for you. It doesn't have, it's not a thing, right? It has no place, no abiding, no quality, no characteristic. That's our fundamental nature. We call it Buddha nature. And in that way, it can't be corrupted. You can't buy it, you can't sell it, you can't turn it into something. Dharma teachings, teachings about the Dharma come from somewhere. They come from a tongue, from a voice, from a mind, from a time and place, from a context, from a person with history. Life experiences within a culture, society. They can include stories and narratives. They can have an intention to enlighten, to guide, to inspire. And in that way, they can be extremely powerful. And they are immeasurably responsible for how we are able to be here today, that those teachings have been passed down. But they can also become obscured and diminished when the person And the delusion of the person speaking that teaching gets, sort of infuses that delusion into the teaching. And in a certain sense, a certain amount of that's inevitable, right? If we're always continuing to discover things about ourselves, that's just another way of saying we're always functioning and practicing with a certain amount of blindness. We don't see what we don't see. And so the ways in which I can speak out of my whiteness, out of patriarchy, out of being cisgendered, out of being heterosexual, those things that, <clears throat> that I work very hard to not be cloudy about. But what, do I, what have I not yet seen? What has not yet become clear to me? And how does that lack of clarity come out? It does. Sometimes because I hear it, usually after a moment or two, sometimes longer, sometimes because it gets reflected back to me. And that helps me see what is not yet clear. When we see that in the teachings, 
misogyny, sexism, for instance, which we see, we are seeing in some of the sutra that we're studying right now, this ango. What we need to understand, it's painful. It pains me, this dharma that I love so much and that I feel is such good medicine. And when I encounter those um, sort of poisonous qualities embedded within a dharma teachings whose sole purpose should be to heal, to enlighten, to dissolve boundaries, to help us realize the, the, the inherent equality, sameness of all beings, to free us and liberate us from all of these categories and all of the ways that those spells create suffering. When I see those in the teachings, it's extremely painful to me. And I think, what do we do about that? Do we just ignore those teachings that have so much good in them? Do we edit them out? How do you do that with a book that's printed? Do we just write a new sutra? I'm not volunteering for that. (laughs) I mean, these have come down to us over hundreds and hundreds of years because they have helped people awaken their mind and they include, because they are Dharma teachings, they include elements of those blindnesses that have come down with them. You know, I'm reading a book by Wendy Garling, The Woman Who Raised the Buddha, I think is the correct title. It's about Mahapajapati. That's not her, but that's an image representing her, who was the first nun. She asked the Buddha if she she and many of her uh, uh, sisters could be ordained. And the Buddha finally said yes, and that began the the uh, body of the ordained women. And, and Wendy has some very interesting things to say about that based on research by other scholars and monastics, scholar monastics. And one is that the Buddha, from the very beginning of his teaching, said he would not die, he would not end until he had what he called the fourfold sangha, male, male and female, lay and monastic. And up until that point, all of that had been fulfilled except for the women ordained sangha. So why, when Ananda came and, or Mahapajapati came and asked to be ordained, did he say no? And what she and some other scholars wonder or conjecture is that he was waiting for the time that was right within their sangha, but also within their community and their relationship with the communities that they were completely dependent upon to do something that had never happened before. And that could have pushback, right? To invite women to leave home and to be wanderers and to follow this path. And they they wonder, was that the moment when he finally realized, okay, it's time. He'd been waiting for that moment. Now, we don't know. But we don't know on either side. And so it's a different way of looking at that and saying, could it be? Because he said from the very beginning, I want this. We need this. There's also, she talks about the eight special rules, because when he when he said, yes, women can be ordained, he, he subjected the women ordained uh, members to eight rules, which put them into a second subjugated relationship to the male sangha, the male ordained. 
But the, the, some of the analysis of this is the thinking that it's quite possible because the reaction in the, t- in the history is that when this was announced to the women who wanted to be ordained, they were delighted and happy and joyful. And the question is, well, would they have been that happy? Yes, they can be ordained, but they have to carry these eight oppressive rules. And so the wondering is, were those rules altered or changed at some point as other elements were brought into the teachings that are thought to have come after the Buddha lived, which were many of those sexist and misogynist elements? We don't know. But because we don't know, can we, can we open the door and allow that maybe other things were going? Now, the effect of those eight heavy rules is the history of that subordination of women in, in the Sangha, which is something that... that um, so when these elements, when we encounter these elements in the Dharma, that how do we know that they're not true? How do we know if something is not true? Because it causes suffering. It's not that complicated. Now, sometimes something is true, and it causes suffering in the moment, right? Like, Dad, can I borrow the car? No, no, you can't. So I get pissed off. Well, maybe he knows something I don't know. Maybe he's aware of something I'm not aware of. Right? I don't get what I want. So there's suffering in the moment, but it's for the intention is for a, lar- a larger good, a greater good. So there's that. But if something is creating suffering, and again, and again, and again, that's a sign. It's not true. It's not in accord with our nature. It can't be in accord with the Dharma. It's something else. So what do we do when we encounter something that isn't the Dharma, embedded within a Dharma teaching? Well, in a way, that's what we have to each sort out. Just pass by. Just pass over it. It's not Dharma teaching, so don't take it in. Don't follow it. Don't trust it. We can bemoan and be saddened with the fact that we even have to deal with it. As we are committed to not only liberating ourselves, but freeing others of suffering, what is inescapable is dealing with the suffering that we were born into that has been passed down in all of its forms. If you believe in rebirth, then it's the suffering that I brought into this life from my past karma. Not my past karma, because <laughs> it's not rebirth. It's not about a person, because there is no person in that way, but the karma that, that is carried on in the consciousness, which in this lifetime resides in this body. So there's that legacy. The, a family has generational karma that gets passed down. Groups have karma that gets passed down through groups. Countries and so on, we know this. And so what do we do about that suffering that has been given to us that, wasn't our, that we didn't create? I don't want that. That's not what I want my life to be about. But that's the world I'm in. This is the body that I'm in. So from a Buddhist perspective, Put that in service to the path. Use it, because you can't avoid. We can't avoid it. Understand it, plummet's depths, transform the energy of that. Right. 
the harmful energy of that into something alive that is true. Samsara is the ongoing reality of our life, and we just want to be free of it, right? Isn't that like that definition of spirituality? Samsara is over here. I want to get over here, please. Can I? Where's the door? Nobody's ever done that. Nobody's ever been successful at that. Is that just because we haven't tried hard enough? Been at it a long time. People are pretty creative. Or is it because that's a false view, a false foundation, a false a path without any possibility of success? Because it's based on a faulty premise. You should know that for, for yourself that if you give up the little stream and immediately return to the great ocean, ocean, you'll realize the uncreated. And that's really what's happening every moment of practice, giving up the multitude of small streams. And some of them are good things, all the good things in our life, but that we burden, that we entangle, we sort of taint with our fears, with our expectations, with our attachments, with what more we want them to. We want more from them than they can deliver. They can't give us those things. The Buddha said, use those things for what they are, not for what they're not. But then there are many of those small streams that we give energy to that are not good. They're not serving us. Know for yourself and return to the great ocean. I'm just laughing because there's a great deal of this talk that's just not going to happen today. (laughs) A great deal of this talk that was to be, I will say. In the poem, Kazan Kazan says, Though there be the purity of the autumn waters extending to the horizon, How can that compare with the haziness of a spring night's moon? We've been gifted with such a moon this week. But the haziness of the spring night's moon. Why not the bright, clear, radiant moon? What about that? Isn't that what we want? That in that haziness, the moon is complete. The moon is perfect and radiant. No haziness can cover that. It is shining in all directions. But the hazy moon does not fully reveal itself to you. You have to come closer. It is completely radiant, and it's not having anything to do with the moon. It's the haziness. The result of our mind, we have to deal with that to come closer, to see the moon's radiance. And so that haziness is the path. It's not obstructing the path. It is the path. Those strong karmic currents that keep showing up in our life, loneliness, insecurity, anger, whatever they might be, we can think of those as intractable burdens or we can think of them as the ways 
Each of us are, are going to work certain things out in this lifetime. Free ourselves. Because the more powerful those streams are, the more powerful the release, the more powerful the shift. Most people want clear purity. But though you sweep and sweep, the mind is not yet emptied. Trying to stop the thoughts, stop the emotions. Maybe that's not what this is about. Maybe the fact that those keep arising is not a sign that something's wrong, but they keep offering us. They keep showing up and say, hey, pay attention. I'm trying to provide you with a path here. You keep avoiding me. But we have to learn. And so we stop. We look. We see. There is a way. Vast like space. With no access and no lack. And that way is you yourself. And when we find that clarity, cultivate that compassion within ourselves. That's now what you have to offer everyone. Everyone benefits. So we should all have a deep, mutual interest in each other's well-being. Right? We're all going to benefit from that in the same way that we so clearly do not benefit from others' lack of well-being. That's obvious. And so, thank you for being here this weekend and this morning, those of you who are joining us from home. And whatever this path is, whatever your path is, please give your heart to it. We say, practice it as though your life depends upon it. Because it does, and not just your life. It's much larger than that. Thank you for listening. To find out more about ZMM's programs, retreats and residency, please visit us online at zmm.org.